everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is a show where we look at Superman and Batman team-ups from throughout the years. On the show, we've looked at a lot of stories from the Silver and Bronze Ages, and even taken a few excursions elsewhere. But right now, we are looking at a 10-issue series that explores the Superman and Batman partnership in the context of DC Comics' post-crisis universe. In the first issue of Batman and Superman World's Finest, which was set shortly after their first meeting, we saw a lack of teamwork between the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight lead to a death of a victim they were trying to save. In the second issue, Superman and Batman agreed to meet once a year on the anniversary of the tragedy, both to help atone for their mistake and to try to get to know one another better. And that brings us to the subject of this episode, Batman and Superman, World's Finest, number three. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the issue was released April 21st, 1999. It's got a June 1999 cover date and 32 pages for the price of $1.99, or 325 if you're in Canada. Our cover is by Dave Taylor and Robert Campanella, and it shows the grinning visage of the Joker leering over the shoulder of a stoic Superman as the shadow of the Batman looms symbolically in the background. And once again, we have an excellent cover. What we're going to see in this issue is Superman in a very dark corner of Batman's world. And I love the representation of that on this cover, as Superman is absolutely enveloped by the pitch-black darkness of Batman's cape with the Joker cackling over his shoulder. You can just see the fear and you might even say hopelessness in Superman's eyes as he's just swallowed up by this this darkness. And it's just a really, really striking cover and one that's a great representation of the premise of the story inside. But turning inside, our story is 22 pages. Credits are Carl Kessel Words, Dave Taylor Pencils, Robert Campanella Inks, Alex Sinclair Colors and Seps, Bill Oakley Letters, Joseph Illich, Associate Editor, Darren Vincenzo, Editor, Batman, created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And our title is Year 3, Light in the Darkness. Eight years ago. It's midday in Gotham City, and a costumed villain named Illuminata raves about conspiracies while blowing up an armored car she claims funds a military-industrial conspiracy. Thankfully, Superman is on the scene. Or at least a Superman. Revealing a seeming lack of superpowers, the figure slowly removes his street clothes and jogs towards the very confused Illuminata and her two thugs. As Lieutenant James Gordon arrives on scene, Illuminata blinds her costumed adversary with a flash of light. Realizing this Superman isn't all he appears, one of the thugs raises a gun to shoot. Gordon tackles the thug as the shot rings out, striking the costumed Superman in the chest, knocking him backward. As Gordon handcuffs Illuminata, officers check on the costumed Superman and find he was wearing a Kevlar vest under the suit, and thus is, for the most part, unhurt. Gordon chalks the whole thing up to just another day in Gotham and has both Illuminata and the costumed Superman hauled off to Arkham Asylum as Bruce Wayne, an on-scene witness to the ordeal, grows suspicious. At the asylum, the Superman gets cleaned up and is interviewed by Dr. Jeremiah Arkham. With the Superman not dropping his claim that he is Superman, Arkham has him taken to a cell, where we become privy to the man's inner thoughts and discover that this is, in fact, the real Superman. On an undercover mission, doing research for our Daily Planet expose on the DC Universe's most infamous prison. At Wayne Manor, Bruce calls the Daily Planet looking for Clark Kent, but is stonewalled by Perry White, causing Bruce to grow more suspicious. After some exposition from Perry, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen, we're back in Arkham, where Clark is formulating a plan to get out of his cell and do research when his cell is unlocked by Illuminata. 
The woman tells him she knocked out the guard and stole his pass keys, and she's releasing the inmates before they're all brainwashed into carrying out the New World Order. Unfortunately, she's already released the other inmates. Superman rockets from his cell, easily taking out the Scarecrow and the Penguin, before busting into a room where Two-Face, the Riddler, Mr. Freeze, and Poison Ivy have Dr. Arkham and a guard held hostage. Harvey flips this coin to choose which hostage will die, but before the coin can land, it's grabbed by the gloved hand of the Batman. And a little tag-team action between Superman and the Dark Knight take out the supervillains in a mere two panels. Once secured, Two-Face raves the heroes are good, but that they haven't won yet, because he always insists on a secondary plan. Knowing the Joker is still at large, the heroes conduct a frantic search through the asylum, soon led to the kitchen by Superman's superhearing, who heard sounds of a woman sobbing somewhere nearby. The Joker leaps at our heroes with a knife, but is easily taken down by the Batman. As the Dark Knight slams the Joker against the wall, the Harlequin of Hate says he should be kinder, after the nice thing he did for Illuminata. The Joker then directs our heroes to a nearby pantry, as he explains he felt compelled to thank Illuminata for freeing him. Since she was always babbling about the light, the Joker says, I thought it would be nice if she could see it better. So I took off her eyelids. And as Superman opens the pantry doors, Illuminata screams in pain and horror. And Superman shatters a nearby light bulb, plunging the room into darkness. Sometime later, as Illuminata is taken away for medical help, Superman and Batman discuss the night's events. The conversation gets tense as Batman berates Superman for expecting him to help simply because it was the anniversary of Gray's death. Superman says he thought Batman enjoyed their team-ups, given that he had taken on a partner of his own. But Batman turns it around, saying it was Superman who was influenced, referring back to his remark last issue that Superman wouldn't last a night in Gotham. Superman explains about his expose, but says he's now going to write about how the facility must remain open as the work they do is too important, much like Batman. With a new understanding and a new respect between them, Superman suggests maybe next year they should pay their respects to Grey in their own way. But Batman responds that Superman's had a rough night, and things just might look different in the morning. End Year 3 and this is an issue that has stuck with me since I first read it. Not necessarily as an overall unit, but two scenes in particular. First, there is the absurdity of the opening scene. And I use absurdity in a complimentary way, as I, as I think the scene was written to be absurd. But the absurdity of the opening scene with Clark you know, masquerading as Superman in downtown Gotham. And then there's the horrific moment regarding what the Joker does to Illuminata, which even today is just... <sighs> but this was another interesting issue. Much of this series is about comparing Superman and Batman, and while the first issue focused on highlighting how Superman and Batman are very different, and the second focused on how they are similar in ways even they are reluctant to admit, in this issue... Kessel takes a completely different approach by throwing Superman headfirst into Batman's world and seeing what happens. Putting Superman inside Arkham Asylum, willingly, obviously, is such a brilliant idea, I'm surprised it hasn't been addressed to this point, and that it hasn't been done since in a different context. As much as they like to dwell in the psychosis and depravity of villains, especially Batman's villains, throwing Superman who is a symbol for light and hope and goodness, into the middle of that seems to be a no-brainer for a good story. And I think it's especially interesting this early in Superman's career. I mean, this isn't extremely early, you know, he's been around the block, but it is his first encounter with something so dark as what Batman ostensibly deals with on a near daily basis or near nightly basis. And part of that is because, you know, comparatively, we have a lot fewer stories from this period of Superman's career opposed to Batman. But a lot of it also is due to the fact that they are just, you know, as this series has been pointing out, they are very different characters who live in very different worlds. 
And you could maybe argue that Superman got a taste of Batman's villains with Magpie in Man of Steel number three, but Magpie was more of a sympathetic character. She's nowhere near the level of deranged psychotic as the Joker. Um, and, and I know we haven't looked at Man of Steel number three on the show, so you know it, if there is someone out there who hasn't read that, then I'm sorry for the reference because you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. But, but that is a book that I will definitely be looking at down the road. Uh, but anyway, I see Superman as a very hopeful character, a, a very optimistic character. And in a post-crisis context, early in his career... I think he was optimistic to the point of being maybe a little bit naive sometimes. And I'll come back to that in a minute too, but using the idea that he wants to do an expose on Arkham as the reason for sending him in was a great idea. I can see Clark in his optimism and and maybe with just a touch of naivete thinking, you know, if I expose the things that go on in Arkham then the people locked up in there can get real help. And that's that's not meant to be a political statement. You know, agree or not, that's not the point. I'm just saying that in Clark's view, Clark, who I think in pretty much every incarnation of the character, always wants to see the good in people and would hold the view that no one is a lost cause, I can see that line of thought, especially this early in his career, despite the danger involved. Now, one could argue that Perry would be more level-headed than to send a reporter into an asylum full of the most deranged killers in the country, but at the same time, I can excuse it because, one, even though this is a period of Superman's career that was never deeply explored, I think it was always understood that Clark quickly gained Perry's trust on matters like this. And two, it's one of those things that you kind of just have to get past because it happens a lot in fiction and it never completely makes sense in a real world context um you know i work for a newspaper and granted it's a much smaller newspaper than the daily planet is meant to be but i i I just can't see the editor or the publisher sending one of their reporters into a dangerous situation like this but you know at the same time men don't fly in real life either so you you just kind of have to move past it for the sake of the story um but what's interesting is by the end of the story it's kind of an eye-opening moment for superman or or clark as he be as he comes to the conclusion that rather than being the darkness he thought it was arkham asylum and by extension batman is the light in gotham's darkness they're just a different kind of light than what he represents because it's all relative, which, you know, again, goes back to Clark's naivete. But the title of the story, which is Light in the Darkness, works on more levels, too, as putting Superman into Arkham is putting a form of light into a form of darkness. Again, it's all relative. And then you've got Illuminata, who is all about literally bringing light by using the flash bombs as weapons as well as figuratively bringing light by exposing secrets and, and perceived conspiracies. Uh, when we first see her, she's already attacked the armored car and she's raving about the you know the, the blood money intended to support the military industrial conspiracy ruling over our lives. But I will reve- reveal their dark secrets with the light of truth. They're afraid of the light, but I'm not. They won't stop me, nor will the policemen on their secret payroll. And it's just really too bad that this character never appeared again outside of this series. Uh, Her name is is perfect, representing everything about the character. And given what happened to her at the end of the story, she's got a lot of motivation to hate Superman and Batman, in addition to the beliefs that are motivating her at the beginning. Um, But anyway, so the story's title really works on a on a couple different levels as well as the story it's kind of exploring a philosophical question of yes light is more powerful than darkness but can you put light into darkness without affecting the light as well and in the end superman is kind of affected by it he's he's made it through the night in gotham and earned batman's respect in the process but i don't think he made it through unaffected 
And, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is an innocence lost, quote unquote, innocence lost kind of moment. But I do see it as a moment of realization for Superman and one that chips away at that optimism that he might have had when he left Smallville. And it's interesting, when you look at the post-crisis Superman's life as a whole, and, and all the stories that were told, which we can do now that that continuity has been set aside, you had stories like this, and the events in Superman the Odyssey, and what happened to the Jenny Vaughn character in Superman for All Seasons, that did a lot to help flesh out Superman's character in between the pages of John Byrne's Man of Steel and sort of bring him into a, a, a grown-up sense of the world, I, I guess might be one way to say it. Clark was never a wide-eyed, innocent farm boy. But if you want to compare it to Pre-Crisis or even Superman the movie, the death of Jonathan Kent or Jonathan and Martha pre-crisis, was a defining moment that took him from a boy with powers to a man with powers. But in Byrne's original telling of Superman's origin post-crisis, Superman didn't have that beyond learning that he wasn't from Earth. So it's nice to see that even though he's been in costume for a while, here and in For All Seasons, it's nice that he has these instances that we can point to and say, yeah, that was a moment of, of character akin to the death of Jonathan Kent, where Clark realized that despite his vast powers, he can't save everyone. And then there was growth from that. But I'm, I'm getting a little off topic. Um, we can stay on the subject of, of Superman's naivete, though, because it, it kind of bites him in the ass here as he makes some really baseless assumptions about his working relationship with Batman. Um, and, and baseless might be a bit harsh, but they they clearly didn't part as colleagues in their first meeting. And the second left the man dead. And then that just leaves the second issue of this series. And yeah, Batman was the one who pitched the idea of getting together again on, on the anniversary of Gray's death, but at the same time, it, 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 it is rather presumptuous of Superman to just show up unannounced and expect Batman to, to have his back if there's trouble. But still, it's it's nice to see their relationship growing, which it definitely did in this issue. Um, Superman's time in Arkham gave him a new appreciation of Batman and what he faces, and it gave Batman more respect for Superman. Um, this isn't a friendship that's coming easy for either man. Superman and Batman each are making mistakes here, and they're both working to build this relationship, however uneasy that is for both of them. And as much as I love the idea of Superman and Batman being friends, full stop, part of me also likes that an epic friendship and a legendary partnership like this would have to be forged in fire. Uh, I, I think it makes it all the stronger in the end and allows each man to know without a shadow of a doubt that he can trust the other uh, with his very life if, if it comes to that. Um, going back to the beginning of the book, I, I think one reason that opening scene has stuck with me for nearly two decades, and, and yes folks, this book is 17 years old, if you just want to think about that for a minute, is that at the point this came out, I'd never seen Superman do anything like this. I'd never seen him do something so bizarre as impersonating himself or, or, or pretending to be someone who is pretending to be himself. I, I guess that might be a, a, a less confusing way to put that. But he sold it. And I love that this early in his career, one, that he would try it because it harkens back to the early, early Golden Age stories by Jerry Siegel where Clark went undercover as a miner or a football player or you know a member of a foreign legion. But also, two that our good Lieutenant Gordon would see him as just another run-of-the-mill crazy, even though he's far more harmless uh, than a Joker or uh, you know a Mr. Freeze. Um, but yeah, on a related note, is this the first meeting, even indirectly, of Superman and Gordon? They don't have much of a history, as they usually don't need to have much interaction. Um, 
It's kind of like Batman and Perry White. Both Gordon and Perry have their roles in their respective hero stories, but they often they don't often get much interaction with other heroes uh, because they, they they serve a role for that particular hero, but that doesn't really carry on outside of those stories. But I, I should really look into that and see if this is the first interaction of Superman and Gordon, because much like. Uh, Batman and Perry White or Bruce Wayne and Perry White, I would love to see more exploration of the of the uh, the, the character and, and the relationship between Superman and uh, uh, James Gordon because I I don't know I I think Superman would be very off putting to Gordon maybe not in the same way that he is to Batman but I I think that Gordon would would uh, not really feel as easy around Superman as he does, you know, Batman or Nightwing or or, or uh, Robin or whoever. Uh, but on a similar note, Superman encounters several of Batman's biggest villains here, obviously. Most, if not all of them, for the very first time. Uh, Superman doesn't have much interaction with most of them, but it is interesting to see, you know... It, it's interesting to see him take out Scarecrow and the Penguin in pretty short order and then get stopped cold at the aftermath of the Joker's psychotic lunacy. Um, and that's another thing I really like. I like seeing Superman take on Batman's villains as I like seeing Batman come up against uh, Superman's villains, even though the, the latter happens uh, a lot less frequently. Um but it, it just throws the characters into entirely different worlds, and, and uh, it, it's fun to see the sparks fly and, and the different reactions when that happens. Um, I feel like I have less to say about this issue, but I, I just don't have a lot of specific standout moments in this issue. And, and I really think I have less to say about it overall, but that's due mostly to the fact that there's just less plot in this particular issue. Um, that doesn't make it any less strong of an issue. I, I really enjoyed what was a uh, a very different approach to the examination of Superman and Batman, but one that still followed up on what had come before, um, both in the series and even inadvertently outside of it. I liked seeing Superman thrust into Batman's world, and I, I look forward to seeing a similar comparison of Batman and Superman's world next issue or, or in, in upcoming issues. Um, for my fellow continuity nerds, given the timeline laid out in Man of Steel, this takes place between issues 4 and 5, just like last issue. Um, obviously, it takes place after the debut of, of all the villains, as well as Robin's debut, uh, but none of that causes too many problems on the, uh, the timeline front. Also of note is that Batman has added the yellow oval to his costume beginning this issue. Though it's only it's only an art element because they don't really reference it all in the story itself. Uh, but speaking of Robin, Superman is aware of Robin prior to this story, as he's the one who brings him up in the conversation. But it's really unclear if they've met by this point. Um, Batman doesn't seem too he doesn't seem to be taken aback by the fact that Superman knows. But the way Superman talks. It seems like this is the first time they discussed it. Um, the, the whole conversation is, is kind of weird. Uh, not weird in, in an awkward way, but weird in that the language used, there's really not one scenario where both sides make sense to me. Whether you know he, he's met Robin and Batman knows it, or, or, he ha- or, or if Batman wasn't aware that Superman knew of Robin. It, I don't know. It, it's just kind of weird, but that's really neither here nor there. The only big continuity issue is that while they never come right out and say it, it seems pretty clear that Batman knows Superman is Clark Kent, even if Superman isn't necessarily aware that, uh, or, or knows that Batman is Bruce Wayne. After Bruce sees the stuff where Illuminata is arrested, he calls the Daily Planet and asks for Clark. And even goes so far as to say that it's the anniversary of the death of a mutual friend. And then at the end of the issue, they're talking about how no one was hurt and no one escaped. And Batman says, except there's Superman. I assume that was Clark Kent. You loaned him your costume for some sort of investigation. Then got it back when you took him to safety earlier. And Superman 
clearly uncomfortable, replies, that's, um, that's right. I, 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 we thought if Clark staged his Superman routine midday, in midday Gotham, you'd hear about it, which leads into the, the other conversation we talked about earlier. Now, Clark and Bruce met in the first issue, but it doesn't make any sense that Bruce would try to call Clark in this situation or even think that he was anywhere near Gotham helping Superman unless he knew Clark's secret. And even given DC's you know, fluidity and, and time compression over the years of, of when things happened, Bruce didn't learn that secret until much later. And the conversation at the end is of the issue is, is really unnecessary if they, for whatever reason, shared their identities off-panel between issues. So I, I wonder if Kessel was trying to imply that Batman figured out Clark's secret or, or at least suspected it long before it was originally depicted. But if that's the case, I don't know why he would feel the need for that since this issue could have played out just the same without Bruce knowing or suspecting. So all of that just leaves me scratching my head. But at the same time, you know, unless you want to be a stickler about the continuity, it's not a significant issue. Um, Art-wise, the issue is just... It's a mixed bag. I know we had the A Tale of Two Cities reference last time, but this one is very much the best of times and the worst of times. Um, There are panels and sequences that are fantastic, and then there are panels and sequences that are just bad, and and sometimes even on the same page, to the point where if I didn't know better, I'd wonder if it was even meant to be the same character in subsequent panels. Thankfully, when it's good, it's really good. Illuminata's costume is very simple, but it's sleek and timeless in a way the best comic book character designs are timeless. Um, Her henchmen have shirts that match, which, yes, it's very silly, but it alludes back to the henchmen gang from last issue, so I kind of liked it. Oh, and speaking of her henchmen, one of them is Donnie who was one of the twins we saw in the first issue. Um, Gordon even comments that he's dealt with him before and that he'd worked his way up from, you know, small-time thug to to henchman. Um, So it's interesting to see him brought back as a sign of, just as a sign of the progression of time outside of the two main characters and, you know, the circumstances they find themselves in and and their relationship to one another. Uh, But we get a great shirt-rip splash on the second page, you know, and, and Superman's body language and facial expressions throughout that opening sequence are they really sell that he's just not quite right um, maybe even overcompensating you know he's putting on an act and the art really carries that so uh, good on Dave Taylor for for the art in that area Um, about halfway in there's a completely awesome panel of Superman busting through the wall George Reeves style Uh, and that's something that that never gets old and and I'm not going to go so far as to say that it's impossible for an artist to screw it up. Most make it look good, as Taylor does here. Um, Batman finally shows up in a great quarter-page panel as we get a, you know, we get a few good shots of him throughout the rest of the book. Unfortunately, again though, Batman uh, Taylor's keeping Batman in a lot of shadow and silhouette, and while he makes it look good, and there's there's really nothing wrong with that per se, and it does help to to visually contrast between Superman and Batman. You know, Superman is bright and colorful, and and Batman is, you know, the blues and the grays and the blacks and and, and shadows. At the same time, I I just can't help but feel that Taylor is a really good artist, and I wish we could see more detail and more action from Batman, as we did several instances last issue. Um, But, you know... Scattered rough pencils or, or sorry, rough panels and inconsistencies aside, though, it does feel like that Taylor is getting a better handle on both characters as the series goes on, especially Superman, which is good to see. Um, as I think I've said sometimes before, it it takes artists a couple issues to get a good handle on Superman for some reason. Um, they're usually a little quicker with Batman. But at the same time, I, I think Batman's easier because you can, you know, 
drop him into shadow and, and make him look awesome, as we've seen Taylor do several times. Uh, but that's all I've got. Just another really, really strong issue. Uh, maybe not as meaty as the others, but then again, it didn't need to be. So right now, we're going to take a break for a couple of promos, and then we'll be back for a look at the uh, what else was in the issue and what else was on the stands. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com is it that makes a superhero? Superpowers like super strength? Or bullets bouncing off your chest? Perhaps the ability to fly? Or can a regular person with the super heart and the brains to match become on the outside what he has been on the inside all along? Hi, this is Matthew Apps, and I'm the host of a monthly internet radio program covering the adventures of steel the only human member of the Superman family of characters to wear the S-Shield. It's called The Armoured Hero Steel, a John Henry Irons podcast. On the show, as well as looking at his adventures, I also take a look at the ads and letters in Steel's book, briefly look at what's happening in the rest of the Super family, and even take a closer look at people that are important to the character of Steel, from the people that worked on his book, to supporting characters, including heroes, villains, and even family members. Check it out every month at www.thefanofsteel.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com If you want to read this issue, it's been reprinted, along with the other nine issues of the series, in a trade paperback appropriately titled Batman and Superman world's finest. Ad-wise, not a lot to talk about. Uh, This was kind of a meh time for for comic book advertising. Though there is a full pager for Superman The Odyssey, which is a book I've referenced a couple times while talking about this particular series. Um, That's a story by Graham Nolan and Chuck Dixon, which is set early in Clark's life, uh, before his costume debut as Superman, as he was traveling the world. Um, It's a good one-shot, and it does feature a very, very brief cameo by a certain millionaire playboy from Gotham City, so maybe I can find a way to squeeze that in and cover it at some point, because technically, it is. Okay, it's not a team-up between Batman and Superman, but they're both there, so, you know, maybe I can figure a way to cover it at some point. But but even if not, I'm sure Mike and Jeff over at From Crisis to Crisis will cover it when they get there. And, you know, maybe it'll show up on another Superman podcast at some point. But now it's time to head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com for a look at what else was on the stands. And because all ten issues of Batman and Superman, World's Finest, came out in consecutive months, I thought it might be a little bit dull to hear me talking every episode about what are essentially the same books. So I've called in some friends from the podcasting community, and in many episodes during this series, I'm going to be handing over the mic to them to get their thoughts on the highlights and and standouts of the month. This time, it's a guy who's been heard a couple times on the show. Uh, He's a host of a myriad of podcasts that you'll be hearing about momentarily, but for right now, I'm turning over the mic to my friend, Mr. Sean Engel. Hey everyone, Sean Engel here from Just One of the Guys, and I've been pegged by Michael Bradley, my co-host over at the Parallel Lines podcast, another podcast you can check out here on GreatCrypton.com. Go listen to it. Enough serious plugging over with. Uh, I'm 
Michael has asked me to take a look at some of the uh, comic books that came out at the date of publication and the issue that he's looking at. And that date was April 1999, cover date-wise. So I have Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics pulled up. You can find that at dcindexes.com. Go there and just browse around. Heck, just go to the gallery and click refresh and see what kind of neat comics come up. It's it's always fun, and it's it's great to be looking up this site. But... I'm going to take a look at, like I said, April 1999 and the books that came out at that time. Let's see. The first one I see is a trade paperback, which is Green Lantern uh, Baptism of Fire, which uh, basically encompasses a good number of books from like the 19, from the 60s of the Green Lantern issue. I know I see Fast Friends in here, which is the uh, storyline that uh, had Wally West and Kyle Rayner go against the hair metal sonar, which was awesome. Then it's got the uh, Heroes Quest storyline, where Kyle goes out searching out uh, various DC superheroes like Batman, Wonder Woman, and Captain Marvel. Uh, that's that's a cool trade paperback, uh, well worth looking at. After that, I see Preacher number 50. I'm trying to remember where this was. This was obviously, I think this was after the part in Preacher where uh, Jesse Custer had been a sheriff. He had already gone through the uh, explosion, the plane crash, and I think he's lost his eye. And I think he's uh, kind of wrapping up the storyline, getting ready to try and find his girlfriend, Tulip, and try and take on his vampire friend, Cassidy. Thank you, Andy Leyland, for getting me interested in Preacher. That's that's always been a good book. One of the weird ones we got here is Anarchy Number 2, which has the Anarchy character in a Green Lantern uniform. I never read this book, but it's uh, written by Alan Grant and got Art by Norm Brayfogle, so that might be something looking into. Uh, after that, there was Birds of Prey number six, always good, written by Chuck Dixon, penciled by Grant Gland. You've got uh, Oracle on the cover here, and it looks like a uh, sort of SWAT team is infiltrating Oracle's little secret hideout thing. It's a really nice cover. It says Exposing the Lair of the Birds of Prey, so good story. Um... What else have I seen here? Superman Adventures has got a nice cover. David Michelinie's on the book. I don't know how long he's been on the book, but it's a nice cover of Superman kind of in shadow, holding up like a large portion of fallen building. Anything, pretty much anything written by David Michelinie is going to be good stuff. Uh, we've got number two, issue number two of The Authority, the uh, Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch uh, original version of this. And this is volume one. I never got to read The Authority, but I hear, like I said, I hear really great things about it, so maybe that's something about checking out. Uh, there's Superman King in the World, uh, written by Carl Kessel with uh, Doug Braithwaite as Penciler. Nice uh, cover here by uh, Walt Simonson. I'm not really certain what what's going on with this. It looks like there's multiple Superman, you know, flying away from Superman on the cover. It's, I have no idea what this book is about, but the cover definitely draws me in. And again, that's another thing that I love about Mike's Amazing World of Comics. You get to look at these covers, and that's why I like doing the sort of random covers every once in a while. It always gets me interested. Oh, I'd like to check that out. Ooh, I'd like to check that out. So there's some good stuff here. Um, because I've been reading currently uh, issues of Conan versus Gru, uh, the comic uh, Fanboy is one of the ones that I kind of looked to at the time. And it's one of those ones I might try and go pick up because it's written by Mark Evanier, I think is how you pronounce his name, and with art by Sergio Argonas. And uh, it's basically a takeoff of Sergeant Rock with uh, Sergio Argonas writing part of that. It's also got art by Marie Severin and Jordi, uh, Jordi Bennett, or Burnett. So it's, uh, it looks like good stuff. A nice comedy book is always good to read every once in a while. They have the Green Lantern books this time out. Oh, where is the Green Lantern book? I know I saw Green Lantern 80-page giant. I just finished that one uh, a little while back on Just One of the Guys, and we talked about that. That was one of the better 80-page giants. Uh, it had uh, Kyle Rayner teaming up with a lot of the DC superheroes, including Aquaman, Deadman, uh, Impulse, Plastic Man, uh, Guy Gardner, who else? Uh, Zatanna. There was someone else. I'm obviously forgetting someone. Big Bada. It was Big Bada. You misogynistic goon. You only covered the issue about a month ago. But it was, it was fun, and I was able to record with a lot of great uh, podcasting luminaries. 
and uh, it's it's actually a really good eighty page giant. Uh, now there now I see it. The Green Lantern book that uh, came out this month was Green Lantern number one thirteen, which was the uh, storyline that uh, introduced the character of Effigy. Well, officially introduced him. His character in the book was there for a while, but it's it's a really great cover. It's essentially the cover for issue fifty one with Kyle on there, sort of gritting. You know, it all it all begins here, except Effigy is sort of burning his way out of a version of that cover, and it's it's really good art by Daryl Banks and Terry Austin. You know, really does a great job inking him on the cover as well. So that's that's obviously. <clears throat> a book I'm very favorable about. Let's see, also going through it, uh, we've got uh, the Flash issue number. Um, where is it? One forty nine here, which I think is the fifth part of the Chain Lightning storyline. Mark Wade's still on the book, uh, and Brian Augustine is helping out with uh, writing. But the thing that I think I would really want to see in this is Paul Pelletier is penciling for this, and this is the point in time when Paul Pelletier is sort of starting out still, but. Everything that I've seen for Paul Pelletier is gold, so this has to be a good book. The JLA number 30 is also a, a really nice book. I think I still collected this. Unfortunately, this was about the time when I was sort of winding down my initial comic book collecting, but I do remember getting this issue of JLA, and it's still written by Grant Morrison with pencils by Howard Porter, but the really neat thing is this is sort of an homage cover of the first JLA story that Morrison did, except instead of having the Magnificent Seven on the cover, you've got the uh, essentially the JSA with the Spectre, Alan Scott, Green Lantern, uh, Wildcat. I'm assuming it's got to be the Wonder and the Golden Age Wonder Woman. It might be Hippolyta herself, Jake Eric the Flash, and the new Johnny Thunder with his uh, sort of magic thunderbolt pen, I guess. MIB pen. It's been so long since I've read that, but it's a great cover, and Porter and Dell do some really great artwork in that book. But since this is a Superman and Batman podcast, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some of the Superman books. Unfortunately, I wasn't reading all that much Superman at this time, but there are some really neat covers. Superman 145 has, a, I guess it looks like a, a character who might be a, a veteran who's disabled. He's in a wheelchair here, and he's... Uh, up silhouetted by a, well, he's in front of a giant uh, American flag, and he's holding a Superman cape and burning it. I'm, I'm hoping he's not, uh, you know, sort of burning the Superman cape in effigy because, you know, that that should be against the Constitution, I would think. Um, also, there's Superboy number sixty-three, which is for every world of Doomsday, which has a really neat cover of the uh, the '90s Superboy. He doesn't have his leather jacket on. Uh, it's part of the hypertension storyline, and he's fighting against, it looks like, all of these doomsdays, all of these doomsdays' fists coming out of the ground. And, yeah, if uh, Superboy's having to take on uh, this multitude of doomsdays, yeah, that would be pretty good. Uh, pretty good story, I would think. Of course, it's written and inked by Carl Kessel and penciled by Tom Grummet, so you don't get much better than that. But uh, that's kind of all that I see. It's it's a good month. Uh, like I said, this was kind of nearing the end of my comic collecting time, so I didn't get too much of that stuff other than the Green Lantern stuff. But I'm certain there's tons of good stuff out there, and I have to really appreciate Michael for allowing me to come on and just kind of ramble about you know some of the great things at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Always fun to look at what was uh, being published at the time. And once again, Michael, thanks again for having me on and. Uh, I'll probably be seeing you, well, not technically seeing you, but talking with you soon when we do our next issue of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast, where in the Tangent Universe, Superman is the Atom, and the Flash is a girl in skin-tight, skimpy clothes. Bye, everyone. Thank you very much, Sean. In addition to being my co-host on Parallel Lines, Sean also is host of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast and co-host of a myriad of other shows at twotruefreaks.com, where he talks about Star Trek, Doctor Who, horror movies, The Walking Dead, and uh, probably many other things that I am uh, embarrassingly forgetting right now. So be sure to head on over to twotruefreaks.com and check out Just One of the Guys, as well as all the other many, many fine shows that they produce and offer. Uh, if you're into anything that's geek-related, you're sure to find something over there that's going to interest you. And once again, thank you very much, Sean, for helping out. 
Next time, we'll be looking at Batman and Superman, World's Finest, number four. And guess who's coming to dinner? Well, if you're Superman and not talking about dinner, the answer is Batman and a whole host of crazy Jack Kirby creations. But that's it for me. As always, I want to thank you very much for listening and encourage you to send me your thoughts and comments on the show and the issue either by emailing me at michael at greatcrypton.com or by leaving a comment on the show posting at the website or by using the email form at the website. I, I really do love hearing from listeners and would love to know your thoughts. But that's all I've got. So thank you again, and I'll talk to you all next time. Goodbye. listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman. Featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together.
music that closed out this episode was In the Shadow, In the Light by Enigma from their 2003 album Voyageur. If you like the song, I'd like to suggest you head on over to twotruefreaks.com. While you're downloading the latest episode of Just One of the Guys, Back to the Bins, Hey Kids Comics, or any of the other myriad of podcasts they have available, why not click on the Amazon.com banner? Buy the song or the album or, well, pretty much anything else Amazon has to offer, and Two True Freaks gets a little commission off every purchase. Not only will you get new music for your library, but it won't cost you anything extra and help support a great group of podcasters.